Hello and welcome to this episode of The Jewish Views with Phil Dave, Kate Fulton and Tony Honigberg. Coming up on this episode, we will be discussing new figures that have been released by the CST, which shows anti-Semitic incidents from the first half of 2018. We'll be discussing that with Dave Rich. We'll also be hearing about a new book written by Mark Nash. It's called Three Dreams in the Key of G and is set during the peace agreement in Ulster. It's really quite a heavy book and we'll find out more about that a little later on. Heavy, of course, in topic as opposed to weight. And we'll also be hearing about the life and work of the late June Jacobs CBE who has passed away this week from her friend and colleague Dr Edie Friedman of JCOR. But before all of that, with a roundup of the main Jewish news stories from the past week, here's Vivian Krieger. Jeremy Corbyn is facing a blistering new onslaught on anti-Semitism. In an unprecedented move, three Jewish newspapers have declared on their front pages, United We Stand. Jewish News, together with the Jewish Telegraph and the Jewish Chronicle, all carry the same hard-hitting editorial claiming a Corbyn government would be a threat to Jewish life. The paper's attack follows a clash between Mr Corbyn's supporters and Labour MPs over the definition of anti-Semitism this week. And in an act of defiance, Labour MPs will vote in September on a motion calling for the adoption of that definition of anti-Semitism that's already been rejected by the party leadership. It also comes as Labour's shadow Chancellor John McDonnell called for a swift and amicable resolution to disciplinary measures being taken against the veteran Jewish Labour MP Dame Margaret Hodge after she accused Mr Corbyn in a face-to-face confrontation of being racist and an anti-Semite. Mr McDonnell claims that Dame Margaret misunderstands the party's new code of conduct on anti-Semitism, but also said her outburst was out of character. In other news, tributes have been paid to the social justice campaigner June Jacobs, who's died at the age of 88. Ms Jacobs fought for women's rights and served as head of the International Council for Jewish Women. She also helped Soviet Jews and spoke passionately about social justice in Israel. The Board of Deputies said she was a fearless campaigner who did great work for the causes she adopted. The American golfer Tiger Woods criticised a heckler who attempted to put him off his final tee shot at the British Open by twice yelling out, Free Palestine. Tiger Woods responded by shouting out, No, angrily, but later said, Unfortunately, that's part of what we have to deal with in today's game. The heckler was ejected from the course. Maurice Kay, Britain's longest married man, has died at the age of 106. He was with his wife Helen, who's 105, for 84 years. He leaves two surviving children, seven grandchildren and seven great-grandchildren. He was once quoted as saying that the secret to their happy marriage was that he always agreed with his wife. Viv, thank you very much indeed. Well, let us begin this episode of The Jewish Views in traditional fashion with a look at your copy of The Jewish News for this week. And joining us to go through it, my goodness me, what a treat. Not one, not two, but three people to go through it. We have editor Richard Ferrer, we have news editor Justin Cohen, and we have features editor Fran Wolfish. Welcome to you all. Let us begin, though, on the front page. And I don't think that I have ever seen three of you review the paper. I don't think I've ever seen the three main Jewish newspapers united together. Yes, a historic week, not only in Jewish media, but I think in the history of the British press. I, for one, and I've had an eye on media for nigh on 20, 25 years now, I've ever, ever heard of 
newspapers, rival newspapers, publishing identical front pages, all in pursuit of a similar cause. Well, that's what's happened this week. The Jewish News, the Jewish Chronicle and the Jewish Telegraph up in Manchester have all united under one banner. And we are doing it on behalf of the Jewish community, who I feel now, after all this time, all these years now we're talking since 2015, Jeremy Corbyn and his Labour Party have gone to the extreme now of rejecting the IHRA, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance's definition of anti-Semitism, allowing scope for criticism of Israel, for comparisons between Israel and the Nazi German state, are suggesting there's dual loyalty between Jews in the UK and their loyalty, for want of a better term, to Israel. So we have all run the same editorial comment under the headline United We Stand and it starts today. Britain's three leading Jewish newspapers, Jewish News, Jewish Chronicle, Jewish Telegraph, take the unprecedented step of speaking as one by publishing the same front page. And it's a call to arms on the 5th of September. It's the last chance for Labour to see sense to do the right thing to adopt the full IHRA. After that, we say they will be seen by all decent people as institutionally racist and anti-Semitic. Well, let's clarify, because obviously Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn himself has told you, Justin, that under no circumstances he or his party anti-Semitic. So I suppose that this is definitely screaming out that something is very wrong. The fact that the three main Jewish papers have had to take this step. I think this is the the third example, unprecedented example of togetherness within the community. First of all, of course, you had the uh, Enough is Enough rally a couple of months back, bringing together uh, huge numbers onto the streets in Parliament Square to make the point that the community is united as much as it's ever going to be on this issue. Then we had last week the 68 rabbis from across the political spectrum plus the religious spectrum uniting for a joint letter on this issue. And and this is a third example of the togetherness of the community on this issue. It's absolutely unbelievable. And of course, the coverage doesn't stop at the front page. I mean, the first few pages of the the paper this week also talks about Labour and anti-Semitism. What else is going on in the paper? Well, we've commissioned a poll this week, an exclusive poll with Comres, who one of the largest national pollsters in the country, and uh, it's broken down into lots of different areas. We've gone on the headline, 29% of Labour voters say Corbyn is letting them down on the attitude towards anti-Semitism in the party, which is perhaps the most telling. These are people that will actually physically go out at the next election and cast their vote, mark their box for Jeremy Corbyn to be the Prime Minister. One in three think he's letting the community down and letting Britain down as a whole by failing on anti-Semitism. I have to say that the reaction to this poll online on Twitter from Jeremy Corbyn supporters was completely strange, completely bizarre. Suggestions that they were almost jubilant at the results, the idea that only 29% felt this way and that and that somehow that showed that he had a lot of support still. The fact is that 38% said they don't know and only 33% backed him on that particular question. Similarly, when we looked at the general population, this is a poll of 2,000 British adults, we had 31% of the total saying that Margaret Hodge was right last week to call him an anti-Semite. And of of the total, 43% said they don't know. So again, some people were taking that figure of 31% to suggest that the rest were somehow on his side. 
But the fact that 31% of the British people, a country that Jeremy Corbyn wants to lead, were believing or were ready to believe in some way that he was linked to anti-Semitism, I mean, that's completely unprecedented in itself. This is during a period of time where Labour is meant to be cleaning up its act. It's meant to be being proactive, addressing the situation, dealing with issues uh, and getting rid of this cancer within its midst. And clearly it's failing. Uh, This number you'd expect to be uh, at this level maybe a year or two ago. But here we are now on the potentially on the cusp of of an election. I mean, if uh, the Tory government absolutely explodes over Brexit and is going in the way it currently is, some pundits seem to think an election might happen with within months, maybe even in the autumn. So this is a, a clear and present issue, I think, for the Labour Party to address. And it also proves it's not just the Jewish community that sees that there's a problem here. Well, we are definitely going to carry on this, I dare say, in the months to come, because heaven only knows we've carried on for several years so far. But let's look at some of the other stories making the paper this week. And the CST are to publish figures for the first six months of this year. Yes, six monthly figures released on Thursday this week. And it's good news in a way, but it also obviously uh, there is no good news when it comes to anti-Semitism and, and statistics. 727 reported between January and June, and it represents less than the last six months, but it's still the second largest on record. When you have these figures, who do you think is going to be the people who need to look at them? Who, who do we want to sort of show them to? I think it's important that the country is made aware of, of where we're at. There, There's a lot of news out there on anti-Semitism on a weekly basis, as, as we know. And so for the country to actually see how this breaks down, and to also see how many instances of a particular type of uh, attack, whether that be graffiti or or verbal uh, attacks or something online, it's useful to have this, this regular update. I think another thing this will remind people of is that whenever there are uh, incidents of you know, flare-ups of violence in the Middle East uh, involving Israel and the Palestinians, there's always also an increase in incidents of anti-Semitism on the streets of the UK. There's a spillover onto the streets of the UK. Uh, and we see that again in May around what was going on at the border of Gaza and the, the number of protesters, many of whom, of, of course, were, were connected to Hamas, were shot. There was a, a spike in incidents in that month. And also, I think it's important to note a lot of these attacks, mercifully, are not on people. They're on, on property. That's graffiti. It's online. It's, it's digital issues. In terms of actually attacks on individuals, they are mercifully rare and continue to do so. And one of the great reasons that's, that's true is because we've got people like the CST and others who are looking after us and, and, and protecting our schools and shuls and community centres. Do you think the, the incidents with Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party has a big effect on the increase in anti-Semitism? It's not proven that it correlates certainly as Justin said whenever the temperature rises in the Middle East the temperature rises here indeed the breakdown there's a monthly breakdown here January to June and you can see in May there was 160 individual incidents and that was exactly when you had the the rise in temperature on the border of Gaza so there is an absolute correlation I think there whether there is a relationship between Labour Party policy and the safety of Jews on the streets uh, I difficult one to to yeah it's 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 a worry if that really is the case but how you'd prove it I don't know we'll put that to Dave Rich from the CST when we speak to him in just a short while but now let's bring Fran into it. And we say that, Fran, what's this about a restaurant that's about to revolutionise 
the way that Jews spend Friday night. Yes, it's really exciting, isn't it? It's actually the first kosher restaurant ever to have opened in Belsize Park. I know, I know, I'm excited too. <laughs> <laughs> Just stop everyone going from Golders Green and Edgware all the time. That rather training has shone through, Fran. Well done. <laughs> Yes, it's called Tish. Tish meaning table in Yiddish, but it also conjures up a more Hasidic meaning of joyous, a joyous meal or joyous celebration. And this restaurant, what's different about it is that it's actually offering Friday night dinner and Shabbat lunch and you pay it in advance. So it's all completely kosher, kosher. And I was going to say, board. how on earth does that work? But one would assume, though, that if it is for Saturday lunch, then they could only be serving something cold. They wouldn't be able to heat it up, surely. From what I've seen of the menu, it does look like cold food, though there is one hot option as well. So one presumes that they have a hot plate or something like that. But a, yes. A nice chillant on the way for Shabbat lunch. <laughs> it's a long walk from Edgeware, though. It is. I'm not it's quite sure how he mastered that. Even Golders, it's a, it's a bit of a... I was going to say, I think, Kate, you're probably the only one who could possibly be within walking distance. But then again, you'd build up one heck of an appetite if you did. Really? Yes. I bet there better be a few good dishes on there. Yes. Well, speaking of dishes, for the sort of during the week menu, um, there's Hungarian bean soup. The owner is actually from a Hungarian Jewish family. So he's reflected a lot of his own heritage and upbringing in the menu. There's chicken soup with knedlich, obviously tuna tartare and then for mains you've got things like dry aged ribeye steak crispy duck leg pan roasted mushroom strudel oh my goodness i can see all the saliva around the studio here and for those That's of a us lovely who- image thank you <laughs> <laughs> beautiful for those of us who may be a little more sort of you know finance conscious is it going to break the bank or does it have to be a special treat I think it's it's in the ballpark of what we expect at a kosher restaurant. Actually, I, I, the so rip off then. No, no. I mean, chicken soup <laughs> with canelich is seven pounds. You know, good it's, lord. It, maybe <laughs> it's slightly towards the higher end. It, 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 suppose... it is towards the higher end, but it's Bell Size Park, and it's yeah. it's a High nice. I was going to say we've got to think of rates. We've got to think of rates. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, I think. For people who do keep Shabbat and are in walking distance, it offers a nice alternative to making a Friday night meal. Or if you've got a simcha and you want to do a big, you know, Friday night dinner before a bar mitzvah, something like that. And for those who, you know, perhaps don't keep Shabbat, but still want the Friday night atmosphere, you know, there's talk of synagogues and organizations hiring the restaurant out basically on a Friday night. Or and a I, and I guess also if you've got tourists coming to England who may want a Shabbat meal, then there's be somewhere to go because there's nowhere at the moment. No, there? exactly. They have it's to difficult. go to people's homes or mm. try and find out, you know, where they can go. So this is, you know, I think this is a, a good alternative. Why not? Let's support the kosher restaurant. I know. I've done, I, when, I've, I've, when I've been in New York, I've done that. We've prepaid for a Friday night yeah. and because there are coast restaurants that are open in New York. I'd like to see whether or not the trend continues in somewhere like Golders Green, though, or Edgeware, where actually you do have more of a a vast Jewish community. I'm not saying there's not one in Belsize Park. I know there is. But I mean a larger community that would actually greatly benefit from this kind of restaurant. And also, I I desperately hope as well that if the owners of Tish are listening, bearing in mind how we've been nice enough to give you such great publicity (laughs) for your opening, if if you wanted to offer the, the Jewish News and the Jewish Views team a free meal, we won't say no. However, that is 
I'm afraid where we're going to have to leave it for a look at the paper for this week. But Fran, thank you very much. And also, of course, Richard and Justin as well. Don't forget, if you want to pick up your copy of The Jewish News, then you can get your copy across London every Thursday. Or, of course, you can read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Now, official figures from the CST will show that anti-Semitic incidents recorded in the first half of 2018. This report is available from the 26th of July. And to discuss the findings with us, we have Dave Rich, the Head of Policy and the Deputy Director of Communications at the Community Security Trust. Dave, these, these figures are at a historical high. Can you just explain how they are reported? Is this like a, a one-off incident, an each single incident? Because I often worry that when you have something like um, an incident on social media that can then be forwarded a thousand times, but it's only ever recorded once as one publication. We record incidents that are reported directly to us by the victims who experience them or by witnesses who see them or by CST volunteers around the country. Um, We also record incidents in an information exchange process with the police. So in the situation you're describing where a particular anti-Semitic tweet might get seen hundreds or thousands of times and might get reported to us several times over, we would only record that tweet as a single incident. And also, if a particular person, a high-profile person in the community, a Jewish member of parliament, for example, gets lots and lots of anti-Semitic tweets directed at them in a single burst, say on a single day, as part of some kind of coordinated campaign, again, we'll only log that as a single incident, even though it might include hundreds or even thousands of tweets. So where social media anti-Semitism is concerned... The numbers in our report are only indicative of a trend from one year to the next. They're not in any way supposed to be an actual measure, an actual count. Because you do call them incidents. And so the the same as somebody shouting something awful in a street to a little boy is the same incident as something that may be, you know, reposted in in a social media thousands and thousands of times. I, I don't understand how it can be one incident. Dan, well, you're showing because, a trend. Well, it's one, it's one item of anti-Semitism, I suppose. I mean, it, it's, we work on a, on a victim-focused basis. So if a person reports into us, they've had something shouted at them, they've had something tweeted at them, they've seen graffiti in the street, we will, we will give them the support they need and we will log the incident as the incident kind of attached to them, if you like. Now, obviously, with social media, these things can be seen and reposted and retweeted multiple times. It's not practical to log every single one for every single time it's seen or retweeted. It's simply not physically feasible. And it would also kind of make a mockery of our actual figures from one year to the next because it would, it would dwarf everything else. So we focus on victims and the witnesses who report things into us. We log the anti-Semitic tweet, in this case, as a single tweet. But we say very clearly in our report that the number, the number of anti-Semitic uh, incidents on social media that we include in the report is not meant to be a total measure of everything that's out there. Far from it. That's a, a different issue entirely. Who actually decides 
what is classed as an anti-Semitic incident? Because is it the victim who comes to you and says, I feel like something anti-Semitic has happened to me and therefore I want the CST to make a note of it? Is it the CST themselves who hear the individual's report or what has happened to that individual and then you decide how does that bit work? So our starting point will be that the the victim or the witness or, or the police or whoever reports it to us comes to us and says, "We, I believe this is anti-Semitic. That's our starting point. We take that seriously and we treat that with respect. But we do always look for some evidence of anti-Semitic targeting or language or motivation in the incident. Now, this might be explicit. It might be very obviously anti-Semitic language, someone doing a Hitler salute or a visibly Jewish person, that kind of thing. Or it may be implicit and it may be down to what we know about patterns of behavior in a certain area, the way anti-Semitism happens in certain areas and, and at certain times. But there needs to be some kind of evidence for us to log an incident as anti-Semitic. So in addition to the 727 anti-Semitic incidents we recorded in the first six months of this year, there were another 340 potential incidents reported into CST that we did not include in our statistics. A lot of these will be suspicious people hanging around near Jewish buildings or Jewish locations or criminal activity affecting Jewish property or Jewish people, where there is not sufficient evidence to say this is actually anti-Semitically motivated but it affects CST's security work, obviously. So we deal with it from a security perspective, but it doesn't make it into these statistics. Do you think anti-Semitic incidents have been on the rise since the political situation has changed in this country? There's definitely a correlation. We have recorded over 100 anti-Semitic incidents a month for every month since April 2016, bar two. Now, to put that into context, in the pre- preceding decade, before April 2016, it only happened six times. But since then, it's happened every month, bar two. Now, what happened in April 2016 was the huge political row about anti-Semitism in the Labour Party blew up with the suspension of Ken Livingstone and Naz Shah. Now, it's been up and down in the news since then, but generally speaking, anti-Semitism has played a much more prominent role in politics and in media reporting and as an issue in public life since then. And that has correlated with a sustained high level of anti-Semitic incidents taking place and also being reported to us. We often associate anti-Semitism with extremists, with neo-Nazis, or with extreme Islamists. But I think we have to remember, most anti-Semitism just sits in the mainstream of normal society. And when it is playing such a prominent role in mainstream public life, this is one of the consequences. Interesting you talk about the consequences, because there doesn't seem to be a a weighted value on the incidents. I was thinking about that, because the hurt that is caused... Possibly, I can't, you know, put a, it's hard to put a value judgment on people's feelings, but the hurt that seems to be caused to me by a desecration of a grave, which happened to my family who live up north in Manchester, would be maybe greater than, than the sort of 50th thing that, that some, and again, they're all terrible, that somebody who is in the media would, would have received generally 
And I'm just thinking that that was, you know, the effect on the individual is maybe something that I I can't see in the report at all, actually. Well, the effect on the individual, of course, is a subjective measure. And every individual will feel a different level of hurt from from an incident they experience, depending on, on a multiplicity of factors. So we do separate out the incidents into different types of incident. We separate violent from nonviolent. We separate damage to property from abuse directed at people. And we separate what you might call harassment type abuse from direct threats. But even within that, I know from experience of dealing with many incidents and many victims and witnesses over the years, some people will experience what on on paper might look like an incredibly serious, upsetting incident and brush it off and just get on with things. And other people will experience what an outsider might view as, as a lower level or less impactful case of verbal abuse or social media abuse and actually be incredibly shaken and upset by it. Yeah. So I don't, I don't think it's in our position to, to try and assume or judge in any way how each individual will respond. Unless they were to, to have a questionnaire or something. No, but I, because you do, which I think is quite interesting, actually, the who and what is being targeted, those, you know, individuals, people who are visibly Jewish, Jewish community, homes and synagogues, they seem to be quite sort of set out. But actually, there's quite a lot of overlap. You know, the, the, the home may be targeted because it's got a, a mezuzah on the wall, but it could be also because they've seen religious people going in it. I mean, it's quite an interesting way that you've actually separated these particular targets. There is, of course, overlap. Public figures might be visibly Jewish. We separate in the, in the text of the report, we talk about incidents affecting schools and Jewish school children. Of course, Jewish school children on their way to or from school will be visibly Jewish because of their uniform. And we try to get into some of the detail and complexity of this in the report. But I think that the message to get away from this is that there's no single obvious type of anti-Semitic incident, no single type of person or building targeted or of perpetrator either. There's a lot of overlap. But you get very different factors affecting how anti-Semitic incidents happen on a very local level. So the kind of incident you might get in some streets in in Manchester would be would be different in the north northern part of the city from the southern yeah. part of the city, which might be different from Leeds or from Golders Green or from Stamford Hill and so on. It's a very complex picture. There's no single typical incident really. So if anybody wants to find this report, how do they get hold of it? What should they do? They want to get a so copy our, of it. Our report will be uh, live on the CST website. That's cst.org.uk. Okay, and just finally, if anyone actually feels that they are under some sort of threat and that they feel that they would like to report what they believe to be an anti-Semitic incident to the CST, how do they go about that? If anybody does feel worried or they've experienced any anti-Semitism, please do report it to CST. We have a 24-hour contact number of 0800 032 3263, which you can call at any time of day or night or uh, you can contact us and report an incident via the CST website. Dave Rich, who is the Deputy Director of Communications and the Head of Policy at the Community Security Trust, thank you very much indeed for speaking to us today. If you'd like to get in contact about any of the stories you've heard on this show, then we'd love to hear your Jewish views. 
Email studio at jewishviews.co.uk. On Facebook, go to facebook.com forward slash the Jewish Views. On Twitter, we are at Jewish Views UK. Or you can go to the website jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. And a new book out called Three Dreams in the Key of G is being published this week by Dead Ink Press. And in the studio with us, we have its author, Mark Nash. Hello. Hello. Tell me, firstly, tell me where did you get the title from? Well, funnily enough, I repurposed it from the first novel I ever sat down to write as an 18-year-old in my cap year. And not having lived any life, I thought I could sit down and write the great British novel. It's obviously completely ridiculous. So that, that project was junked. But the one good thing about it was the title. And I originally had a title for this, which relied very much on the cover art. It was sort of embedded in that. And the cover art I thought would get rejected, and it did. And once the cover art got rejected, the title had to go. And then that's when I repurposed one from when I was 18, which worked and fitted. For any particular reason, is it called three in the key of G? I mean, the key of G is obviously a musical note. Sure. Not that it's G specifically, but that very much that it was sort of, sort of a musical feel. To, to There are three different levels of reality. There are three uh, female character voices. And also it deals with the, the sort of the makeup of DNA in the Human Genome Project. And G is one of the four chemical bases, standing for guanine. What's the, what's the story about? I mean, I know people like to say, you know, you, you want a little background. I was just wondering, just reading, reading the back, is it based on, I mean, is Ireland a place that you have a close connection with? Emotionally and intellectually. I've never actually been to Northern Ireland. But emotionally, when I was growing up, I grew up in Wembley. And I was nine when the Yom Kippur War broke out. And I remember my parents giving blood to you know to help Israel and then the following year we took we were one of 20 families who took people who'd been soldiers who'd been injured in the war and we had a guy who'd been in a tank that got hit and got very badly burned and he had sort of livid skin grass and this is December time in England so it's you know very uncomfortable for him so at age 10 I had this very sort of full-on immersive the war being brought home and yet what really resonated with me was the images I was seeing on the TV news coming over from Northern Ireland, because the difference there was the car number plates are the same style as in England, the shops are the same or very similar, the road signs are the same. So even though I was sort of being encouraged to concern myself with you know the Middle East, somehow the more familiar thing that just over the water that's part of the country that I was part of, somehow that resonated with me much more. I have written a, a book on, on sort of the, the Middle East, but it was time for my, my Northern Ireland book to come out. So your Northern Ireland book then set in, in Ulster yep. and takes, follows the story of these three women. One of the women is, One ba- of the women. is based in Ulster, yes. Yeah. So she's the mother of two young daughters and it's set in the time when the peace agreement has just come into force. So that the men of violence are returning home either from the prisons or they've been decommissioned from their weapons back into the domestic realm and the tensions that sets up because... I think, you know, sort of parents anywhere in a war zone or a combat zone, but particularly mothers, there's this difficult tension between wanting to shield your children from violence, from bigotry, but also the the social expectation that they will be loyal, they will grow up to be loyal foot soldiers. They will support the cause unfailingly. And that's why part of one of the themes is, you know, is there any real sort of point in trying to explore the difference between nature and nurture? 
if the nurture is effectively hardwired, because you're born into a Catholic family, or you're born into a Protestant family, or you're born into an Israeli family, or you're born into a Palestinian family, you have very little choice. Mm. So therefore, is there any real difference between nature and nurture? So all that happens is they can dream differently rather than actually be different yes. in, their, in their yes. lives. And so f- for the mother, I mean, obviously, she also had sort of stymied dreams. She wanted to go to Belfast to university and her parents prevented that. And she's very much, it's very much about sort of parenting and being surrounded by children all day and being cut off from adult contact. Mm. And, you know, that's very difficult because I was the main child rearer. I have, we have twins and I did most of that. And I found myself cut off from sort of adult contact through the day and being around non-lingual or basic lingual children. I found that very difficult. Particularly for an author, it must have been very hard yeah. when all your whole being is words. Yes, yes. This sounds like a very deep and a very full-on story. Did you find that when you were writing it that you had to almost submerge yourself in that kind of world to really make sure that all of the, the intrinsic details were as accurate as could be? Well... It's not a realist book. I mean, uh, the only realist voice is, is the mother. And I could apply lots of my own observations, having brought up my twins and seen the various different developmental stages about things, how they acquire language and how their sort of psychology changes. So that I could draw on my own experience. But the rest of it is, I feel, any book sets you a set of challenges, sort of stylistic and, and you know, intellectual challenges. And, and you, you know, for me, it's a fun process of trying to solve these questions. You know, if it's a discovery process for me, I mean, hopefully it will be for the, mm. the reader as well. I'm fascinated by the fact there are so many books at the moment set in Ireland. I mean, I've literally read myself, maybe I just read Com Toybins. I've finished, just just in the middle of reading the, the John Boy's The Hearts Invisible Furies, and they all seem to be set in Ireland. And yes. when I came across yours, I thought, oh gosh, okay. And there's three on the And there's a few the more on the, on yeah, the on the booker list. Yeah. I think I wonder if it's a sort of you get to the point where the the Northern Ireland history becomes something that you don't want to lose for the next generation. You want to sort of remind them of it. Or do you think there's an element think, of I that? I think there's lots of things going on about it. First of all, you know, unlike South Africa, they haven't had a peace and reconciliation committee, so they've not had a formal process on it. And it's still pretty much the same generations that were fighting, as we saw two weeks ago when you know parts mm. of Northern Ireland went up, you know, in flames again. So I think there's a there's a, a certain level of security that the peace process has brought that has enabled people to start thinking and looking back and, you know, you know what were the stakes? What did, it, what did it all mean? It's going to be interesting with Brexit, whether that destabilizes everything. There's always, I know a few Irish people, from, people from the Belfast area of Northern Ireland, and whenever you talk to them, there is always an underlying remit there they're always looking over their shoulder basically to do they trust who's following them down the road you know but to do that without visiting i mean i know kafka did it with his book with america America, yeah of course he never visited america but wrote the book and other authors write books where they literally measure the steps it is from Mm. one street to another you know i took 450 steps and turned left into so and so and they're obviously accurate Mm. and they have to go and visit these countries but is it a challenge to do it without actually visiting the country? Well, I, yeah, on one level, undeniably it is. But it's pitched at a level of, it's very much about a mediated Ireland, how Ireland has been mediated to mm. us and the rest of the world. I mean, that's how it came across to me. I was living in London, but it had a very powerful effect on me. And I think also writers are able to almost sort of like sleight of hand or disguise, you know, the fact that mm. there, there isn't a lot of, you know, really sort of, 
great verisimilitude in the in the detail. Yeah. But you can suggest it. Yeah. You can suggest it's, that the research. It's called artistic license. Yes, it is. It is. And without it's very, romanticizing it too much. And it's very much a, you know, a lot of it takes place in the mind. Yeah. What was the point where you thought you had to put this story from pen to paper? You must have had this formulating for quite a while before yeah. you actually wrote it. What, well, what was the turning point you thought, actually, I need to get this on paper? Well, I've always found that a book sort of becomes viable for me when I've got the central voice and the central metaphor. And once I have those two, I feel confident that everything else will spin off, things like the story and the plot and how different characters interact. So I don't necessarily know that. I'm not a planner, but once I've got those two central elements in place, then I feel confident that I can go on a process of discovery. And the book would emerge from that. It's quite an interesting sort of uh, sort of flicking through it. Um, it's quite interestingly written. It's not got chapter numbers or no. chapter names. It's got um, li- little illustrations. Lo- little illustrations yeah. and lots of Roman letters. Yes. What's that about? So the mother has, has kept a, a journal of basically of the development of her first child, and she's going now that she's had a second one. She's kind of going back to consult that to, because as you go into each new stage of child development you purge the memory banks of everything that's gone before because it's, so it's not true. it's not relevant anymore yeah. so she's going back to this this diary but the thing is the dates are there apart from that they're in roman they're in roman numerals i'm is, sitting there is, trying to remember which what? is of course inflammatory <laughs> in a protestant household in itself of which course. is a deliberate act by her but also it's not in chronological order for some reason which is revealed by the end the development stages are not in the correct order mm. in the book do you give um, people a, to, do you remind them what an L stands for? Or no, a, I, no. I we're going to have to work I that out, audience. They'll have to Google that <laughs> one. Is that 50? Yes. <laughs> exactly. But again, it's that thing where some readers will be very keen yeah. to know the exact date and others will, well, okay, this is the impression, this is a different date. This, yeah. But if you're going forward and backwards in time, you kind of need to know that, that that's happening. Yes. But I, I mean, hopefully, because of the, the development of the child that that section is talking about yes, that, will be play, clear. that will place it, it yes. as well out, out yeah. of curiosity when you, you're writing not specific to this book when yeah. you're writing a book yes do you have a set time that you feel you have to complete it in and, and do you ever stick to that timing well I used I used to because I was always work, writing around my work but you know I've been doing this long enough now that I just you know I feel I can write in small bits I mean that is written in sort of quite episodic self-contained sections chapters whatever you want to call it and if I've got 20 minutes, I know that I can, I can do some writing in that. Whereas 20 years ago, I never would have felt, I've got, no, my God, I've got to use my three weeks summer leave to do it. And, and write every day, 24 hours Yeah, a day I don't feel weeks. that anymore. I don't feel, and I don't yeah. need to beat myself up if I don't get any writing done. Does it become addictive? It is a compulsion for me. Definitely is, yeah. The, the writing there must be like someone reading a book because you read a book and you think, oh, well, I, I'm, I'm tired, but I've finished that chapter. I've got to get on to the next one to find out what happens next. And then you get to the next, I've got to get on to the next one to find out what happens next. It must be very much, very similar. It it definitely is, but I don't feel the pressure. I, I, you know, I trust myself that, okay, I'm going to break off here for today. Tomorrow I'm going to pick up and try and solve, mm. you know, the, the barrier or the stopping point that I've hit. Well. Thank you, Mark. Well, Mark thank Nash you. in the studio with us today. Thank, thank you. you very much for coming in to join us. Thank and you tell for us having all me. about your new book, The Three Dreams in the Key of G, which is published this week. Thank you. Thank you. If you'd like any more information about any of the guests or about any of the stories that have been featured on this show, go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. 
You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Now, this week, tributes have been paid to the Jewish social justice campaigner June Jacobs after she passed away at the age of 88. To find out a little bit more about the life and work of June, we can now speak to Dr. Edie Friedman from JCOR, who knew June rather well, didn't you, Edie? Uh, yes, I did for well over 30 years. Please tell us, because for those who don't know, tell us about some of the amazing work that June did in her life. Well, I first met her when she was the head of a number of Soviet Jewry campaigns. I met her because after I had been debriefed after a little Jewish-Christian trip that I made to, to Leningrad to visit Refusniks, after being debriefed by, by June about her trip, I missed my last train to Leeds, and I was ill, and I didn't know many people in, in London and just fortunately had 10 pence to be used 10 pence in those days to make a phone call and rang June and said, can I come and sit in your house? Because I'm not well. Anyway, to cut a very long story short, I'd come back with Russian a flu and had spent three days being nursed by June. What an time. introduction. So <laughs> I know. So that's how we became friends. And in between the paracetamol and the, and the chicken soup, we had many discussions not only about Jews in the Soviet Union, but about my work in, in creating uh, JCOR, which was then called the, the Jewish Social Responsibility Council. And was it, was it at that stage that you realized very quickly that you two had parallels in your thinking behind what was right in the world and what was wrong? Oh, yes, ab absolutely, yes. After just a very few conversations with June, she was one of the people who I didn't really need to explain why I was interested in, in starting an organization such as J-Corps, she, she got it immediately. But she also had a very infectious personality and a great sense of, of humor. So it was a, a great mixture of being able to talk about politics, but doing a lot of laughing uh, at the same time. So a, a great combination. Now, as I started this, I, I introduced her as a social justice campaigner. So can you maybe tell us specifically what she was always fighting for throughout her life and what she wanted to see change and ultimately what actually she did accomplish? Well, I mean, the, the Soviet Jewry campaign became a successful campaign, but her interest went far beyond that, as you've pointed out. She had a, a real passion for, for women's rights. Uh, she had a passion to see justice between Palestinians and Israelis. And concern about social justice within the UK, whether it was child poverty, supporting asylum seekers and, and refugees, combating racism. And she was a board member of, of JCORE and also used to host our Black Asian Jewish Breakfast meetings as, as well. So it was a great combination of sort of combining food with conversation about politics and how we could by working together, try to uh, do something about the, the lack of, of justice uh, in the world. Although I, she was involved very much with JCOR, I understand she was also involved in Europeans, women's rights and international commission and all that sort of thing? That's right, yes. Yeah, Not just Jewish women, but women No, 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 far, far from it. No, she was very much in, in, involved in, in women's issues internationally and, and concerned about the way women are, are treated differently from, from men. 
and how, I mean, you know, obviously there's just so many different levels, whether it's in, in pay, whether it's the way um, women's rights are ignored, child care, it's a whole range of things, whether it was divorce laws and how women were treated very differently from, from men. So she had all of these concerns very much in her mind and expressed them very forcefully. So she was a great role model. I mean, not only in terms of having this wonderfully articulate woman uh, talking about women's rights, but the way she talked about rights for all individuals. So, you know, an important role model for, for many of us in the Jewish community. And to go back again to say, she was terribly funny. <laughs> so, I, yeah, I also I, understand that Jeffrey Alderman said that of her that she was one of Anglo Jewry's most potent weapons. Yes. Yes, absolutely. But I would see that as a very positive. Oh, absolutely. No, oh, you, definitely. I think what an accolade. Absolutely <laughs> yeah, lovely. No, absolutely. I mean, you needed, you know, it's important that people combine a number of, of traits in, in the work that they do. And, and June was one of these people who certainly embodied a range of, of these important traits that are really useful, you know. And humor is also important um, as you try to get people on your side to understand some of the issues about social justice that you you know need that humor so that people sit up and take notice how do you think you'll remember her well i mean she was first and foremost um, you know a good friend she was there when we got married she was there uh, when our daughter was was born and we would we would speak often i mean she was a sounding board for looking at new ideas and insights. So I think, you know, first and foremost, she, she was a, a lovely, warm friend. And it's great when your friends also share the same understanding that you have about the way the world is and how we would like the world to, to be different. So that was a great bonus. And I'm sure there were many people in, in that same position. Very lucky to, um, to have known her. And we can't possibly end this without mentioning the fact that she was actually awarded a CBE for a lot of her work. So clearly recognized and very much a tour de force. Yes, absolutely. I mean, she had many friends and admirers throughout the world, really. I mean, if you ever said you were going on holiday, I remember a trip we took to Cuba and she had some contacts there that we were able to, to utilize. So she was certainly recognized both within the community and outside it. And I think that's also an important role model for, for many of us in the community that we have to uh, play a role inside the community, but equally we have to play a role outside it too. Is Jacob going to do something to celebrate her life? Well, I think we, we need some time to reflect on that. I mean, I was pleased that we were able to share some of our, our insights uh, with, with the Jewish press, which they have covered. So I think we need to reflect on that and, and also speak to, to her family as well. But, uh, and we were lucky that when she became less active with us, she uh, became a patron. And that was also very important to, to have her name there. And she came to as many meetings that she could. So uh, anytime we organized a meeting, um, June was there, so you know that was um, that was fantastic. She was she was there for us all the time, which I think the Jewish community is there for her in terms of carrying out the work that she was involved with. 
Edie, I'm going to put you on the spot ever so slightly. Summarise, if you would, pretty much in one sentence, and it's very difficult, I know, after a, a lifetime of rather incredible and impressive work, but how would you summarise in one sentence June's legacy? Well, I guess a, a fighter for, uh, for social justice with great wit and, and wisdom that she was able to share with, with many of us. Well, in that case, that's how we'll take it away, and that's how we, I am sure, will all remember her. But for now, Dr. Edie Friedman of JCOR, thank you very much indeed for telling us about the life and work of your friend, June Jacobs. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And now it's time for the Rabbinic Thought for the Week from Rabbi Andrew Shaw from Mizrahi, UK. So I was walking around this week, and I saw a headline or, or something that kind of piqued my interest. This week they're releasing Now That's What I Call Music 100. And I looked at the songs on this album and I really didn't know any of them. And also I didn't really think it was music. When I think back to the first Now album in 1983, when I was a teenager, or not quite a teenager, but almost a teenager, there were classics such as You Can't Hurry Love, Phil Collins... Come a Chameleon Culture Club, and of course that classic Down Under by Men at Work. Now that's what I call music. I don't call the music on the 100th album music at all. To me it's just a lot of noise and just not at all something I'd listen to. But again, that's unfair, because that might not be what I call music, but I'm sure there are many hundreds if not thousands of people who listen to the album and love that type of music, because music is subjective. It depends on who you are. Depends on what you like and what your tastes are. And of course, we've had recently another album that's been released by the Labour Party, led by Jeremy Corbyn. It's called, now that's what I call anti-Semitism. And of course, that really does stink. Because it's one thing to decide for yourself what music is and what music isn't. Because again, it's your taste, it's your ideas, it's your what you want to listen to. But when it comes to anti-Semitism, I'm sorry, there is not mine and yours and his, that's anti-Semitism, pure and simple. Calling Israel a racist state, that is anti-Semitic. Comparing Israeli armies to Nazi soldiers, that is anti-Semitic. And the link goes even further this week, because of course we have the Pasha of Vethanan, when we read or reread about the giving of the Torah and the Ten Commandments. Now that's what I call Judaism, is also something that can be quite difficult to understand, because how do we define what is, what isn't? And Vedchanan has within it the origins of what Judaism is. Laws, practices, commandments, mitzvot. They form the basis for what Judaism was and what Judaism always will be. That's what we call Judaism. And that, in many ways, is what matters. Thank you to Rabbi Andrew Shaw for the Thought for the Week. And that's it for this edition of The Jewish Views. Thank you to our guests Dave Rich, Mark Nash and Dr. Edie Friedman. And thank you too to our producer, Sue Greenberg, and to you at home for listening. You can always listen to this episode or any previous episode of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk. And please remember to subscribe to us in your podcast app. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News. From me, Kate Fulton. From me, Tony Honigberg. And me, Phil Dave. Do join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.